Well, it's Tuesday, people. Uh, you having a terrible day or a good day? Uh, well, one thing's for sure, you've come to the right place. We're talking about two kingdoms. It can only get better from here. Okay, so Chris and I are talking about um, his book, which is essentially a distillation of Meredith Klein's covenant theology and an accessible one at that. Uh, We are relying on you kind of reading the book to track with this conversation. I mean, it'll be moderately interesting, hopefully, if you haven't read the book, but especially if you're wanting to use this as a kind of intro, please go ahead and download Chris's book. Uh, It's available for free preferable if you buy it, you know, just because I'm asking. I know he wouldn't. Um, And it's a great book. So, you know, read through the chapter. I mean, we've only done a few pages. Read it through. You've got a whole week. um, And we will try and hit this on Mondays normally, but we just want to get kick-started. So we're on uh, Tuesday as well. We just finished with looking at the definition of covenant and why that's important, simply because we want to make sure that we're covering every covenant in the Bible. We want to make sure that we're not automatically discounting the possibility of there being a works covenant theology um, right off the bat as scripture reveals it and uh, trying to sort of come up with some definition that's going to scramble us from the beginning. We need a definition of the covenant that's essentially going to allow us to see the first covenant in the garden for everything that it is. And the reason for that is that we can get what's happening with what Christ does for us later and seeing the second covenant or the gracious covenant as truly gracious. Um, now, we'll get into that in a second or two, but um, let's keep going with that. Um, just thinking about your definition, um, just looking for it here. Where is the actual definition that you give in, in, in page eight, 17, 18? 18, it's right above the heading Eschatology in the Ultimate Kingdom of God. Oh, there it is, yeah. All right. Um, we could say that a covenant uh, in which God is one party is an oath sworn legally binding relationship enforced by God. Yeah, that's good. Now, um, you know where Klein, I think, does Klein talk about a divinely sanctioned oath or commitment or something like that? He he brings the sanctions into the definition, doesn't he? Yeah, and I was was trying to say that with enforced by God. Okay, uh, yeah. Just because sanctions, at least, I don't know. It's not a word that we use every day. No, and it, and it has a negative connotation to it. People constantly only think of curses for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, yeah, really you're wanting to have that ultimate sort of blessing and reward. And especially with a divinely sanctioned commitment, it doesn't sound like he's saying, um, you know, it's a oath with blessings and curses. It more sounds like, like a divinely authorized Commitment, or I don't know, something, <laughs> right. something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I like what you've done there. But maybe it's just worth pointing out that that enforced by God is is pretty important in in that you will see. I mean, I suppose I think of, um, um, for example, and you might actually mention this at some point uh, before or this um, in in the book. But but um, just in the way that you you know, for you get to the the covenant of works in the garden, and they don't even use the word covenant, and uh, you certainly see the sanctions though. You see uh, that the whole thing is, you know, there there are rewards or there are curses, um, and and the whole thing will be enforced by God, and so you know you're immediately seeing some of those elements right there. 
Right. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because um, just because the word covenant may not appear somewhere, if you see these elements, then you know that you're reading about a covenant. Mm, totally. Yeah. And you mentioned the oath thing as well in that, in that vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see the word oath, um, that's important because it's almost interchangeable for the word covenant. It really is. Yeah. yeah. I'm just uh, just skimmed over it. Oh, verse, uh, not verse 17. <laughs> Sorry, I was preaching this morning. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is not the Bible, but it's, it's close. No, I'm joking. Uh, the, the earth is important for more than one reason. First, it alerts us to, I'm on page 17, by the way. First, it alerts us to what kind of covenant we are reading about based upon which party swears the oath. After the fall, it becomes especially clear that if God swears the oath, we can be sure that it is a covenant governed by the principle of grace, because God cannot lie. Uh, He does not change, nor does he turn away from his intended course of action. If God says that he will keep the terms of a covenant, he will keep them regardless of anyone or anything. On the other hand, on the other hand, if man swears the oath, we can be sure that it is a covenant that is governed by the principle of works or justice, because man can change, he can lie, he can rebel. Uh, what is impossible for God, changing, lying, unfaithfulness, is quite possible for man. And then, uh, secondly, oaths are important because they are so essential to covenants that even when the word covenant does not appear in the biblical text, if we read about an oath, we can be sure that we are reading about a covenant. So, you know, that, mm. I think that's a really important um, uh, paragraph in that you, you know, you have re- the tools right there, not only to detect where a covenant is happening, but to detect what kind of covenant it is. Um, right. you, you know, if God is, is, is uh, taking the curse upon himself, is calling an oath and, and enforcing the covenant even through his own uh, self-malediction, as it were, um, I mean, that's, that shows that you've got, you've got, like, I think Abraham, for example, this is a very contentious sort of debate thing in Reformed Baptist circles, as you know, and, um, and I mean, this, this is going to matter, you know, if you see God calling the oath upon, or taking the oath and, and um, undergoing the, or promising to undergo the sanctions, I mean, at the end of the day, that is very clearly communicating to you what principle we're dealing with. It's not a it's not a works covenant at that point. You're dealing with a, a covenant of grace, and then, and then of course uh, the same for the garden. You know, you you know, with all the debate and and uh, contention and you know just back and forth there uh, in reform circles. Um, the reality is, if I mean, I think it's very clear that what's going on there is that man gets rewarded for. You know what he what he does, and so you know again you see the the antithesis happening there. Um, but we'll talk more about that as we get to. You got a whole chapter on that one. Um, what I wanted to do though is um, just point that out as a, as a really helpful little tool, and then we get into eschatology. But actually, maybe what we should say first is uh, in terms of definitions, um, the definition of covenant and the definition of grace is just going to be like the whole thing. You know, if you get if you yeah. get those two down, you're good. Those two are probably the um, the heart of of this whole issue. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, maybe we should just jump forward. We can come because you got this thing on eschatology, which is great. Um, but I'm just wondering. <laughs> it's good and all, but <laughs> it's good and all. But hey, I want to get to grace. No, I'm joking. Uh, but uh, <laughs> just to, just to connect it, because I I always found that so amazing. Like um, if you if you get this. 
Um, so you can you can say like there is grace before the fall if you if you use the normal definition of grace, I suppose. And and you know, it, it, again, it gets quite fluffy and broad and all over the place and already loaded and that sort of thing. Like you could you could just say unmerited favor, even you know, which is a very popular way to define grace. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And in that sense, of course, you know, there's well, you know, God is ontologically greater than the creature and you know like you know at some level there's going to be you know god sort of um offering grace you know it's it's not merited in the in a very very strict uh, you know sense uh, maybe you know there's still a plausibility with the idea but as soon as mm-hmm. you start defining grace as demerited favor um that that means something completely different and you can't bring grace prior the fall um, in that way. So what do we mean by that? Why is it, you know, walk us through what you've said here with regard to, uh, um, you got like debit or merit and balance systems and checkbooks and, uh, what's the thing that people need to get? <laughs> well, I, I think the first thing I would want to say is, um, we have to deal with what God has given us. And so we're talking about the biblical text. Yeah. So I'm saying that because I am intentionally trying to ward or warn any listeners off from the whole ontological um, analysis of that God is, we are not just in the nature of being creatures and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You're already standing uh, up to your neck in speculation. Yes. And the more you go down that um, reasoning road, you're just going to get in over your head in speculation. So let's just, let's bring it back mm-hmm. to the biblical text. And what we see when we look at grace is that um, it is in the context of um, God's justice having been violated. Mm-hmm. That's when we, that's when we encounter grace. Mm-hmm. Um, so that already creates a problem for talking about unmerited favor mm-hmm. because i mean mike we could uh bring each of our respective wives um you know flowers when we come home from work mm-hmm. and uh that that's unmerited <laughs> certainly yeah. yeah but that's not at all like the situation between god and us right totally um and I mean, the way I described it to my students when I taught at William Jessup University is that um, it's not as though we were just walking down the street and God saw us coming and walked up and said, hey, how would you like an all-expenses-paid trip to heaven? Right. And, and you know, that would be unmerited. <laughs> it that, would. That would be like, dude, that's so unmerited right there. Yeah. Um, n- not unlike the, the flowers um, right. analogy right. that I just made, but... Um, what's different about what the Bible says has actually happened is that we saw God coming and we went up and stomped on his toes and spit in his face and yeah. tried to beat him up and leave him for dead. Yeah. And after all of that, he said, here's an all expenses paid trip to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's, that's massive. And, um, yeah. And so, I mean, there's none of that before the fall. Exactly. Yeah. Before Adam and Eve uh, listened to the serpent and ate from the tree, um, they were not at all about uh, rebelling against God. 
Yeah. Now, what about those who, uh, as you say in the book here, uh, and now I'm just sort of jumping around randomly, but uh, the, page 22, some would say that this casts a shadow on God and somehow diminishes his capacity as our Heavenly Father by turning him into our employer. When we start thinking about, you know, that he made a deal with us in the covenant that we've just defined, um, and um, and there was an obligation on Adam's part, and there was the reward, the promised reward, and um, and and if if we kind of hold him to it at this at this justice works level, that we're turning him into you know an employer. What do we think about that? Yeah, I'm I'm just not convinced by that objection because uh, God being just and God being Father are not opposed to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can see um, how that is problematic for earthly fathers. Um, I certainly see it in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not just enough. Um, mm-hmm. and when that happens, it, it causes problems in terms of my relationship with, with my children. Mm. Um, and the, the answer isn't always to, um, simply say, oh, well, we can just disregard the the rule that I made or something yeah, like that. Right, right. Um, the answer usually is that I need to be more just in the kinds of rules that I make to begin with. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and so, um, you know, the, the condign merit, congruent merit thing, um, again, it's just kind of fresh in my mind from a conversation I had this morning. Um what have you thought about those categories? I've typically just kind of rejected them all and gone with a kind of covenant um, merit thing in that it's kind of driving at what we're saying. I suppose, what is it? The condign thing is, comes the closest to it in that uh, there's a deal made and, and there is a reward for the promise. Do you, are you fresh on that or is that kind of diving into some some crazy stuff? I'm not super fresh, but I think I can still yeah. say something about this. And um, I would recommend that readers or listeners uh sorry go and read lee irons's contribution to um meredith klein's festschrift um the name of which is escaping me at the moment but lee wrote specifically on this topic Mm. and said that klein had just a brilliant solution to that problem and what we need to understand is that that whole debate over congruent and condign merit was already again neck deep in speculation. Yes, um, they weren't. Yeah. They weren't dealing with the biblical text. They were just saying, "I, I can do good stuff, and surely God has to take into account the good stuff that I can do." Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Totally. They were just reasoning outside of the the scriptures, and so um, what Klein really wants us to see is that God Himself gets to define what is worthy of reward and what is worthy of punishment. Yeah. And he, he encodes that he builds that into the covenant that he makes. Mm -hmm. So we need to take the, the covenant at face value and let God tell us what's worth rewarding and what's worth punishing. Yeah, exactly. And then then we've completely escaped this whole problem. Totally. I couldn't agree more. And especially when you see, I mean, you know, it'd be one thing for us to, you know, if God said nothing more about it, you know, there'd be one thing. But the whole, I mean, the scriptures are constantly referring to it. Paul's constantly going back to it and saying, you know, uh, this is the whole thing. This is the whole, um, this is, this is, you know, and actually on, on that point, I mean, you make uh, this point, I think Klein makes it as well in the book. 
um, that at the end of the day, if if this if we're not happy with God giving a just reward to someone's works, then we can't insist on hell for their disobedience as a, as a punishment, which I think is a very, very important, powerful point. Oh, yeah, that that argument hit me right between the eyes the first time I heard him make it. But I mean, how can you argue against that if if no one can earn heaven, strictly speaking? Yeah. Then Adam could not possibly have earned hell. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The the argument usually goes the reward of heaven is just you know far greater than any of our measly obedience could ever hope to deserve. Yeah. Well, why can't we say the exact same thing about Adam and hell that yeah. the punishment is so far greater than what eating a piece of fruit? I mean, come on. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think I think that's almost. Um, I, have you ever heard anyone come back to that? Well, I've never. No. That that's pretty much a slam dunk right there. I'm just looking at what you said a year in Romans, or what Paul said, and what you quote. You say the apostle Paul says, "To the one who works, his wages are not accounted according to a free favor, but according to what is owed to him by obligation." I mean, that's probably the best way to put the whole thing, right? In terms of, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got the hell on the one, uh, you know, the punishment of hell on the one side, I mean, you you, you have uh, the reward of life on the other side. And so even in saying that, I mean, heaven is greater than, than um, you know, it's, it's, it's not like we want to diminish the greatness of heaven, but we, we want to just make sure that we uplift properly the nature of of the original works arrangement, right? Anything else you want to you add to that to clarify? No, um, but I do think that um, in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul does very helpfully and very clearly contrast the principle of works and justice in verse mm-hmm. 4 mm-hmm. and the principle of grace in uh, verse 5. Yeah, totally. Then you say, just looking at this... Um, on 24, these specific instances of covenants based upon God's justice in human works, especially the covenant of creation, provide the foundation or skeleton for the covenants based upon God's free grace. I think this is, uh, you know, we're, we're alluding it to it the whole time, but just to, to talk about this specifically at this point would be helpful, I think, because this is everything. Uh, the reason for this, uh, you say, is so simple. God did not stop being God even when Adam fell. Uh, he did not even stop being God when he began to covenantally relate to his people on the basis of free grace. God was still just. Thus, if God told Adam that heaven must be earned by his obedience, then, if, uh, then even after the fall, heaven must still be earned by someone's obedience, even if fallen man could not earn it himself. Um, if heaven did not have to be earned after the fall, then God would have changed something. Uh, he himself tells us he cannot do that. For if he could, the future would be absolutely uncertain. In the same way, if God told Adam that he would certainly die if he disobeyed, uh, then even after the fall, someone would have to pay the ultimate death penalty, uh, even if fallen man couldn't do it for himself. So it's just like, I mean, that's it. So th- I, what I like about that is it shows you that 
you know, because it sometimes sounds like we're just like these super hyper legalists or something. You know, we want to not mm. only do we want to get our definition of covenant right and not so scrupulous about the whole thing, and not only do we want to be insistent upon the works principle, and you know what I mean? We don't want to talk about grace before the fall. And it sounds like we're just like these hyper, we just love law and legalism and death. <laughs> and, and in yeah, fact, right. you know, we're just laying the framework for understanding grace properly because. Otherwise, you just have no idea why Jesus had to do what he did and why it is what it is. It's always by works. It's just, you know, which Adam? Hence the title of your book. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this may be um, more of a pastoral point, which is maybe ironic since I'm not one, but I think I've become more sensitive over time to the fact that uh, this is something that... Um, is completely reasonable for pastors and mm. elders to be fighting about and mm. hashing out because it's going to affect the way the pastor is going to, to preach. Oh yeah. Um, but, but we, I don't know, we probably shouldn't be putting the, the finer points of, you know, all of these things in the sermon. The sermon should be you're forgiven and God has declared you just because mm. of what Christ has done for you. Yeah. That should be the note that rings out. And standing behind that in the pastor's study is all this stuff that we're talking about right now. Totally. And you know what? I'm not even, I'm not even that opposed to putting all the finer points in because it, it, it allows people to, to themselves come to a, a sure grasp of how it all, you know, from beginning to end, is speaking mm -hmm. of, of, of a gospel that, that assures them of um, salvation. You know, it's not... It's, it's not that you just get this very truncated little New Testament part and um, somehow it just kind of works out at that point, you know, and mm -hmm. and uh, great. So somehow Jesus' death really worked out well. If you get the system, you get the whole concept, you realize why, you know, how firstly you see how mammoth it was that Christ came and why that, you know, for everyone works the same way and why it is true that if you are in christ i mean you have one who has worked for you and one who has suffered that death penalty and that's why you're under grace and just i feel like you know that understanding that bigger system is so necessary to feeling the assurance that the gospel brings because then you at every point of scripture you're being reassured and yeah so i think i think uh, definitely you know with um no one's asking uh pastors to turn into uh seminary professors and take third year students through you know any any level of detail but i kind of think like i wish pastors would would say more sometimes you know most of the time i think uh you know just because people want to know and they need to know how to understand and read their bible that's a that's a great point and then i I don't mean to um, argue against what you're saying. I, I guess I was thinking of the the person that might be listening to all this going, gosh, I don't understand. Yeah. Well, it's okay. Yeah. Um, you're still going to heaven if you're trusting Jesus. <laughs> right. Well, no. The problem is you have, you're listening to this podcast when you should be reading Chris's book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you don't understand the problem, just read the chapter first and, and this discussion will make sense. And maybe that is a good thing to say as well. This is not like a, we're not trying to teach you this in any major systematic way. We just want to kind of have a casual talk about it and just reinforce some points. But I really would say that since we're going to be doing this in a, in a basically systematic sort of movement along your book, uh, hey, if you are interested, I mean, the way you said earlier that you had a pastoral point and you're not a pastor, but I just want to say also that 
you know, it's probably one of the more pastoral treatments of covenant theology I've ever seen. So it's kind of like, you know, not only is it an accessible introduction, um, it, it just emphasizes the parts that really matter for everyone. It's not like a, a theologically nerdy, you know, let's just get everything right book. It's more just a, like, you know, I think you take real pains to, to, to bring people along. And so let me, let me just encourage you, anyone, whoever is listening, um, to just, just uh, we've only done half of the, the chapter, the first chapter. Go ahead and read, you know, having 28 pages or whatever that is. Um, and, uh, and that way you'll be able to track with us. And that way this discussion will make a lot more sense as well. Um, so um, let me put that out there. I mean, we are probably getting on for time, so maybe we should leave it at that. That was right before your grace part, and we start talking about grace, the remedy, and eschatology. We're going to have to reverse and do that uh, next, next week. But um, uh, that's good. I, I really, I really uh, appreciated what we said today. Anything else you want to add there, Chris, before we kind of shut it down? No, I think that's good. Thanks, uh, thanks for working through this. Yeah, no worries. Awesome. So wait, just uh, one more time, where do they get the book? Uh, well, I mean, if they want to purchase it, it is available in hard copy from Amazon.com or from CreateSpace.com. Oh, um, hard there, copy. Do it. <laughs> there is, uh, well, there's also a Kindle version available on Amazon as well. There yeah. is a PDF of the first version, which, I mean, the changes really were mostly cosmetic Um yeah. Uh, capitals and lowercase letters. Um, so you can find that at meredithkline.com and it's under the books section. Uh, I maybe, I don't know if you have a show notes page, but I could send you the link that you could put on there if you have. Uh, such yeah. A thing. Yeah, we do. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know if I've used them wisely. I'm just, uh, they're there. <laughs> they kind of never get used, but uh, I always make these great promises about putting things on the show notes and I never get around to it. So, you know, that's why I'm trying to make a real effort, like Google, Google this right now. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise, I never, otherwise people just get left hanging but man um yeah buy the kindle if you can't get the printed one don't get the pdf no one wants a pdf get the pdf anyway and mark it up do some highlights on the pdf <laughs> but uh buy the kindle it's a great book it's honestly the like it's you won't regret it it's like if you're struggling with covenant theology basically what you do in the book is you go through all the covenants and almost focus the whole way throughout through on, on this issue of justification, which is really the gospel at its core. So, I mean, I mean, that's that's an introduction to, to introduction to covenant theology. It's a specific, uh, you know, uh, it's, you, you're going to sharpen up and grow in, in sturdiness on your doctrine of justification. It's a great book, uh, definitely worth getting. And it's cool to have on Kindle, too, because you can just kind of highlight and take notes as we do this and refer to it all the time. So um, I'm going to drop it at that. But um, thanks a million, Chris. Really appreciate it. We'll pick it up. Um, uh, we'll just kind of go as we go and uh, probably do the, the latter half going into Chapter 2 uh, next week. Very good. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks, man. See you, everyone. Mm-hmm.